Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely honored to have with us today Professor Jody Magnus. Professor Magnus is an archaeologist, an orientalist, and a scholar of religion. Currently, Professor Magnus serves as the Keenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Professor Magnus received her BA in Archaeology and History from the Hebrew University and earned a PhD in Classical Archaeology from the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Magnus has participated in scores of different excavations, both in Israel and in Greece. Uh, she co-directed the 1995 excavations of the Roman siege at Masada and uh, has been involved in numerous other excavations in Yotvata, um, in Kirbat Yatir, and other locations uh, in Israel, which we will probably hear about. And Professor Magnus has authored numerous works, including The Archaeology of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Stone and Dung, Oil and Spit, Jewish Daily Life in the Time of Jesus, The Archaeology of the Early Islamic Settlement in Palestine, and much, much more. And today, we will be discussing Professor Magnus's absolutely fascinating Masada from Jewish revolt to modern myth. Um, this really uh, page turner was selected as a finalist for the 2019 National Jewish Book Award in the category of history. And um, we're going to be hearing from Professor Magnus all about Masada, which really is very fitting as we're now uh, going into Israel Remembrance Day to be followed by Israel Independence Day, 75th year. And um, I think we'll hear how Masada has really had an, an impact and the story has an impact on even modern Israel and Jewish history. So, Professor Magnus, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you for that introduction. Okay. Um, we have to start somewhere, and I know it's sometimes hard to start, but let's start, if we can, please, um, with King Herod. Um, who was King Herod, and what were his main accomplishments? Wow, that is a huge question, so I'll try to answer it succinctly. Um, so Herod was appointed king of Judea by the Romans in the year 40 BCE. Um, he himself was, I hate to use the word, but it is kind of useful, half Jewish. <laughs> uh, his grandfather had been an Idumean, that is uh, an inhabitant of the district to the south of Judea, um, when the Hasmoneans forcibly converted that population to Judaism. So Herod was Jewish on his father's side of the family through forced conversion, his mother, by the way, was not Jewish. She was an Nabataean woman, an Arab woman. Um, and so in 40 BC, BCE, Herod was appointed king of Judea by the Romans, and he then ruled until his death in the year 4 BCE. And, um, you know, in, in sort of the public imagination, especially sort of the non-Jewish public imagination, the broader sort of public, Herod is probably remembered best, if he's remembered at all, for an episode that is recorded in the New Testament's Gospel of Matthew, 
where Herod supposedly ordered all uh, boys under the age of two in the area of Bethlehem to be put to death because he heard that one of them would be the Messiah. Um, and uh, so that story, the massacre of the innocents, has kind of colored the way um, the broader public has viewed sort of the memory of Herod the Great. Um, in archaeological circles, however, uh, Herod is actually known as and remembered as the greatest single builder in the history of the country. There is no individual who left a greater mark on the archaeological landscape. He built all over the place. He built monumentally. Um, he established whole cities like Caesarea on the coast, also Samaria, Sebaste. Um, and of course, he rebuilt the Jerusalem temple, the second temple. So um, Herod is best remembered among archaeologists for his many building projects. And among them, of course, is Masada. And uh, Masada is, is, uh, is um, part of sort of a series of building projects that Herod uh, conducted on the southeast frontier of his kingdom. Um, on the southeast frontier, so sort of the area if you go from the Jordan Valley and then down to the area of the Dead Sea, um, Herod built a series of fortified palaces. The palaces were intended to serve as places where Herod could spend the winter when it got cold in Jerusalem. But more importantly, they were fortified. They were fortresses. And the reason is that Herod lived his life in fear that one day the Jews would rise up in revolt and attempt to uh, to assassinate him, to kill him, um, because he knew that he was not accepted among at least some sectors of the Jewish population as a legitimate king, since he had been appointed by the Romans an outside power and was not descended from the line of the Hasmoneans. Um, and so this sort of series of, of border fortresses or fortified palaces was intended to sort of secure the southeastern frontier of his kingdom. And also a second purpose was that early in Herod's reign before the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, Herod was threatened by Cleopatra's ambitions in Egypt. Cleopatra VII, who, of course, uh, was involved with Mark Antony down in Egypt, coveted the same territory that Herod had been given to rule, and Herod uh, was threatened by her ambitions. And so those are the reasons that he created this sort of series of fortified palaces on the southeastern frontier of his kingdom. And, and Masada is simply one of these, and the most famous one, but just one of them. If you go up to the Jordan Valley, there's Alexandrium Sartaba, and then moving down to the area of Jericho, you have um, Horkania, which is behind Qumran. Um, uh, you have Kipros, which overlooks Herod's winter palace at Jericho. Um, on uh, You have Herodium near Bethlehem. On the other side of the Dead Sea is Machairus. So Masada is just, you know, the most famous in a whole series of these fortified border uh, uh, palaces that, you know, fortified desert palaces that Herod built, um, which, by the way, many of them, including Masada, were established on the site of former Hasmonean fortified palaces. Um, so anyway, that that's really what what Herod is probably best known for, at least in archaeological circles uh, is is his, um, you know, the amazing impression imprint that he left on the archaeological landscape. We're, we're quite familiar also with Herodian. Which, uh... Exactly. Herodium is, and Herodium, very interestingly, which could be the topic of a whole nother, uh, you know, series for us. 
Um, Herodium is the only site that Her- apparently that Herod named after himself. He when he when Herod built things, he typically named them after other people. So Caesarea, of course, is honored in honor is named in honor of Augustus. Um, but although Herod usually named things that he built after people, he typically named them after other people, not himself. And Herodium is the only one that he named after himself, apparently because he intended it to serve as his final resting place and therefore as his everlasting memorial. And in my humble opinion, the discovery of Herod's tomb at Herodium, the site of his mausoleum at Herodium, by the late Israeli archaeologist Ehud Netzer in 2007, is the most important archaeological discovery in the country since the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason I say that is because we don't have any um, writings of Herod himself. We have nothing that Herod wrote himself, right? All of our information, our literary information about Herod comes from other sources, primarily Josephus, who drew himself on, on other sources, which are hostile to Herod, which present him in a very bad light. And so what's important about the discovery of Herod's tomb at Herodium, in my opinion, is that it it gives us a direct window into how Herod wanted to be remembered for posterity. And so I think it's an extremely important discovery. Um, you, you, you mentioned, you alluded to um, Masada already from the Hasmonean period, just a little bit of the history of Masada, the structure before the Jewish revolt. Right. So um, I I will say that, you know, um, although uh, Josephus tells us that there were, um, there was something, some sort of fortified Hasmonean palace on top of Masada before Herod's time. And in fact, in, in uh, 40 BCE, um, Herod fled the country uh, by way of Egypt and went to Rome, and that's when he's appointed king of Judea by the Romans. On his way, he actually deposited his family for safekeeping at Masada. So there, there was something up there. But when uh, when the top of the mountain was excavated in the 1960s by uh, Yiga El Yadin, and then later, uh, you know, worked on for publication, um, Ehud Netzer, for example, who published the architecture, and also people who published some of the other finds, could not find any um, any real remains of uh, the Hasmonean structures up there. I mean, there may be some, you know, survival pieces of earlier pottery or stuff like that, but architecturally, there's nothing that we've been able to identify on top of Masada that goes back to the Hasmonean period. Apparently, when Herod built his fortified palaces on top of the mountain, he obliterated whatever earlier remains that were up there. And there's something very similar also at Caesarea, for example, where we know that there was an earlier town there called Straton's Tower, but the remains pretty much seem to have been obliterated when, when Herod uh, built that city as, as Caesarea. Um, so when Herod built uh, the top of Masada, um, we can divide the structures up there into two main groups, the fortifications and the palaces. So the fortifications consist of a fortification wall which is a double line of wall that completely encircles the edge of the mountain. It's a kind of a wall called a casemate wall which is divided into rooms. So it's like a strip of rooms that that runs around the edge of the mountain. Um, And that kind of wall, a casemate wall, is useful because you can store your arsenal of weapons in the rooms or garrison your soldiers in the rooms. And there would have been watchtowers along the way. And of course, there were a couple of gates leading in and out of, of the wall. 
So that's one part of, of Herod's um, buildings on top of Masada. The other component are the palaces, and there are two main palace complexes and then some smaller palaces on top of Masada. The two main complexes are at the northern edge of the mountain and on the western side of the mountain, which archaeologists call the northern palace complex and the western palace complex. And each one of them includes the actual living rooms of the palace, the actual palatial rooms, plus all sorts of service rooms. So you have storerooms for food. Uh, in the case of the Northern Palace Complex, there's a large bathhouse. There are servants' quarters, workshops, things like that. So both of those palace complexes contain those kind of rooms. And of course, some people may wonder, well, why did Herod need two palaces on top of Masada? Why wasn't you know one palace complex enough? And the reason is that each one served a different purpose. And depending on which purpose each one served depends on who you ask. But um, but I actually think that uh, the Northern Palace Complex was Herod's private palace, his residential palace. And the Western Palace Complex was the administrative palace. That's where his throne room was located, where he would have received visitors who came to the top of Masada like that. Um, how often would he visit? I and mean, how often would he visit? Uh, yeah. If he had all these fortresses. Right. Yeah. A couple that's, months that's a year really, he would come. Or... <laughs> you would think, right? We actually have no evidence that Herod ever spent any time on top of Masada after he built the palaces up there. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't, um, because, of course, you'd have to assume that our information is complete. And again, pretty much all of our information is coming from Josephus. Um, so, you know, but Josephus never mentions Herod going to Masada after, you know, 40 BC when he flees to Egypt and, you know, then to Rome. Um, there's no reference to Herod actually ever spending time on, on the mountains. So we don't, we don't know. I mean, he may never have, or maybe he did, but we just, we just don't have any evidence of that either way. Is there a, a, a um, history and understanding of the history of Masada after Herod, but before the Great Revolt, Herod's out of the picture. It still remains a fortification. It's used yeah. his successors. Right. So, so basically, Masada would have been located. You're right. Masada would have been located in the territory um, of his successors after his death in 4 BCE. Right. And so, so what happens is that uh, in um, let me just close this out so I don't get the noise here. Um, oops. Okay, there we go. Um, in um, after, after Herod died in 4 BCE, his kingdom was divided among three of his sons. And it was his son, Herod Archelaus, who inherited the territory of Judea, Idumea, and Samaria. So Masada would have been under his control at that point. Um, but then in 6 CE, so 10 years after Herod's death, Herod Archelaus was removed from rule by the by the um, Romans, and instead the Romans start sending in these procurators or prefects, these sort of governors, you know, low-ranking governors, to administer Judea for them. Um, and so basically, you know, uh, Masada would have been part of the territory under their control until the outbreak of the first Jewish revolt against the Romans. Now, we don't have any, again, no references to anything that happens at Masada um, during this time until we get really to the outbreak of the revolt. Um, but you can be sure that there would have been a Roman garrison up there, right? So Herod's old fort fort fortresses would have had garrisons of soldiers, right, um, 
holding them. We don't know that the garrisons were particularly large, but but certainly there would have been, you know, somebody up there maintaining and presumably also servants or whatever, slaves, you know, who were maintaining the residences or whatever, right, um, on top of the mountain in that interim period. Again, a, a, a loaded question, which could be, a, you know, a series in its own. The main reasons were the first <laughs> revolt. Ah, uh, yeah, that well, yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, the reasons for the outbreak of the first revolt depend on who you ask, right? And meaning which scholars you ask today. Um, and that largely depends on their evaluation of the literary sources that we have, which is primarily Josephus. Um, and so, and and also, I mean, just like everything else, the way scholars approach things is colored by their own, you know, personal background and perceptions. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have a lot of dogs in this fight. I'm an archaeologist, not an historian, so I'm more interested in the material remains. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, it's like everything else. There, there was the situation was complex, and I don't think you can boil it down to one or even two or three reasons. There must have been a lot of different reasons. And I think that we can, among other things, name um, Roman maladministration. I think the Romans did not understand how to effectively govern this particular territory, which had a population that was, you know, different and had sensitivities that they didn't understand. Um, the Herod, during Herod's reign, he managed to eliminate, meaning murder, a lot of um, the most capable uh, successors of his and members of uh, the Hasmonean family, who would have been sort of the natural leaders of the Jewish population. We also know that within the Jewish population in this period, there were a lot of different sectarian divisions um, and tensions. Um, you know, we hear about the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Jesus's movement. Um, there were also tensions between um, different uh, parts of the country, Galileans versus Judeans or Sumerians or whatever, uh, between Jews and Gentiles, right? So um, so I think there was a whole sort of, you know, mixture of, of events. Some scholars, you know, sort of take this scenario going all the way back, you know, to through the first century uh, CE. Some see the events as more sort of um, developing late, you know, later in the first century CE. But, but I really, I just think that it's a that it was a complex situation, and um, I think that probably all of the above were factors. Okay. And we're now during the revolt. Um, what do we know happened at Masada during the revolt, but before the mass suicide? Right. So what happens, what, you know, the first revolt breaks out 70 years after Herod's death in the year 66 CE. And what happens at that time is that bands of Jewish rebels, I'm going to call them rebels, but some of these were really terrorist groups, right? Um, go down to... Uh, Zealots. Go down to, Zealots. Well, no, actually, no. not at Masada, at, okay. at least. Fine. So, okay. so, right. So bands of Jewish rebels go down, and, and not all of them were the same groups either, right? Because there was a whole mixture of different different groups at that point. It's sort of like today you have, you know, Hamas and Hezbollah and, you know, whatever. I mean, you have all these different, right? And so, and now we're looking at this, you know, 2,000 years in retrospect and trying to get accurate information from pretty much one source who sometimes presents conflicting or confusing information that's certainly anyway incomplete. So, that's all got to be borne in mind. 
But at any rate, bands of Jewish rebels, when the revolt broke out, went down and took over some of Herod's old fortified palaces and pretty much held out on top of them for the duration of the revolt, which then lasts officially for four years until the year 70 CE, when the Romans take Jerusalem and destroy the Second Temple. And that's, you know, officially the end of the revolt. So it, during the course of the revolt, then we have these bands of rebels and 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 one group co- goes down to Masada. And uh, they they were led by a guy named Menachem. Um, and uh, according to Josephus's account, already at the beginning of the revolt, they go down to Masada and they they sort of take over the mountain. There's no indication of how they did that. There must have been a Roman garrison there. But, you know, presumably it wasn't particularly big garrison that mm-hmm. anyway. So this these rebels take it over and they loot. They basically loot uh the the storerooms that Herod had on top of Masada, which included military equipment and stuff like that, right? They basically loot it. Um, this guy, Menachem, is is eliminated from the picture not too long afterwards. He apparently was a very cruel person and did some really bad stuff. But eventually, it's a cousin of his, whose name is Elazar bin Yair, who um, becomes the leader of, who eventually makes his way to Masada and becomes the leader of the Jewish rebels occupying the top of Masada right up until the fall of the mountain. And that guy, um, Elazar bin Yair, was a member of a, a Jewish terrorist group. And here I am, def- I'm deliberately using the word terrorist, uh, called the Sakari'i. Um, the Sakari'i were, the, the word Sakari'i comes from the Latin word Sika, which means dagger. So these were dagger men, if you want to put it into English. And they were known by that name because the, the way that they operated was to circulate in crowded urban context. So if you can imagine like the Temple Mount where you have like thousands of, of Jewish pilgrims congregating for festivals or whatever. So they would circulate in these crowded urban contexts. And when they there was somebody who they wanted to assassinate, they had a dagger, which they would hide under their robes. They would pull it out. They would stab the person in the back, put it back under their robes and then run away. And as this person, the person who was stabbed fell to the ground and there was all this chaos, they would disappear into the crowds, right? So they were literally urban terrorists. Um, and and they assassinated, I mean, their opponents, it wasn't like they were always fighting the Romans. A lot of their opponents were Jews. And, you know, there's, a, there's I mean, throughout the revolt with different groups, and this isn't this, this particular group with Elazar bin Yair, but throughout the revolt, there were different groups that, that committed atrocities against other Jews, including one particular massacre at Engedi in uh, that where 700 of the villagers supposedly were massacred um, over during the holiday of Passover by, by one of these groups, right? So there, was a, there were a lot of these atrocities that went on during the revolt, um, the, I mean, Josephus records all sorts of horrible things that went on during the siege of Jerusalem. And so basically, by the time we get to the end of the revolt in 70, the official end, what happens is, is that this band led by Elazar ben Yair is on top of Masada, right? And so this is this is the Sakari. Now, uh, you asked about Zalat. So, so um, there is one... So Josephus actually pretty consistently refers to the group on top of Masada led by Elazar bin Yair as Sakari, except for one time when he refers to them as Elats. And this has led to a lot of discussion among scholars about, you know, why, because the Zealots were a different group. They were not the same group. They were a different group. Um, and 
what's interesting, so so I would say that pretty much all scholars agree that that they were not zealots, they were Sakari. For whatever reasons, Josephus that one time uses the word zealots, but pretty much all scholars agree they were not zealots, they were Sakari. But where it gets complicated is that then when later, when you get Eliadine, who I'm sure you want to talk about, when he excavates the top of Masada and publishes his book, you know, his popular book on Masada, he consistently refers to them as zealots, not as Sakari. And the question is why? Because Yadin knew the difference. He knew. He knew that they weren't zealots. He knew that they were Sakari. So it's not exactly clear why Yadin used that term. And that's created a lot of confusion because now, you know, people go to Masada and they talk about the zealots when, in fact, they were Sakari. Um, you know, there's a, an excellent book on, on the archaeology of Masada that was published, oh, I think about in 08, if I'm not mistaken, 2008, by Amnon Bentor, who's a very senior archaeologist now at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in the Institute of Archaeology, who in the 1960s was a graduate student at in the Institute of Archaeology at the Hebrew University and worked as an area supervisor on the dig with Yadin. So he speculates that Yadin um, chose to use the term uh, zealots and not sakari because sakari had a very negative connotation particularly because uh, at the time um, Yadin, you know, was kind of growing up and becoming active in, you know, the, in Israeli, well, it wasn't even Israel yet. But anyway, before the establishment of the state of Israel, there was a group called Brita Birionim, which was diametrically opposed to Yadin's, the Haganah, which Yadin was a part of. Um, and this was kind of like the strongman alliance or something, who sort of saw themselves as like the Sakari, who would, you know, who saw it as legitimate to um to assassinate um opponents who were Jewish. And so, you know, Bentor speculates that, you know, Yadin wanted to distance the group of Masada and himself and the Haggad, you know, he had this whole thing. And so he uses the term zealots, which again Josephus uses just once, to describe the rebels on top of Masada instead of Sakari. So, you know, anyway, that's that's kind of, it's a little bit complicated for the general public, but because even among scholars, there's no agreement. I mean, there are scholars who, who even think that, 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 um, zealots didn't exist, that, you know, maybe these groups didn't even exist, especially like the zealots. Somehow it's some, just some sort of a scare word. That's how, you know, Steve Mason puts it. So there's all sorts of disagreement, even, even among scholars. And again, it's because the nature of our sources, you know, we're looking back 2000 years. Anyway. Were there, were there people from other groups that, that went to Masada to seek refuge uh, from? Absolutely, the there were absolutely, and so that that's actually the, one of the most interesting things, which is that, um, uh, you know, you have to understand that what happens is so the revolt breaks out in sixty six, and then in sixty seven the Romans uh, basically you know arrive in the country, starting from north, they work their way south. In sixty eight. CE, they're, they're in the area of the Dead Sea, Jericho and Qumran. And basically the Roman strategy was to subdue all the rest of the country and isolate Jerusalem and leave Jerusalem for last, which is what they did, right? Pretty much. Um, and so as the Romans are sort of, you know, subduing the rest of the country, you have, uh, all of these Jewish refugees who were fleeing in advance, right? Of the Roman, of, of the Romans coming. And that's how so many of them end up in Jerusalem in 70, right? So Jerusalem in 70 was swollen with, with refugees. And so, so you have the situation where all of these displaced people are, are fleeing in advance of the Roman attack. 
and looking for places to, you know, to secure themselves. And so undoubtedly, some of those, both um, before 70 and even after 70, were making their way south, um, and some of them made their way to Masada. Uh, and um, there's no doubt that, you know, so Josephus says that that at the time of the Roman siege, which occurred in the winter spring of 72-73 or 73-74, there's a debate about the chronology, but it occurred over that winter spring season, one winter spring season. Josephus says that at the time of the siege, there were 967 Jews holding out on top of Masada, but they were not 967 soldiers and they were not 967 rebels. They were 967 men, women, and children. And so these were like basically families. Some of them were members of the Sicarii, but others were just, you know, refugee families who had found refuge on, on top of Masada. And um, it, there's, there's, I think, pretty good evidence that among these sort of groups of refugees who, who arrived at Masada were members of the Qumran community. Qumran is the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. I agree with a majority of scholars that the that the group that that um, lived there were Essenes, um, and uh, there's some pretty good evidence that that some members of that community uh, were among the Jews on top of Masada at the time of the siege, and they must have fled from Qumran when the Romans destroyed Qumran in 68. So, you know, probably some of them made their way south to to um, Masada. And the evidence consists of both literary and archaeological evidence. By literary, I mean, well, it's kind of literary. Um, by literary, I mean that there are that there are scrolls that were found in Yadin's excavations on top of Masada, which, although not definitely sectarian, meaning they're not definitely works of this particular sect, um, are works that are found among the Dead Sea Scrolls and are compatible with a sectarian outlook. And so the Joshua Apocryphon, the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, for example, um, and it was on that basis, by the way, the, the discovery of the songs of the Sabbath sacrifice at Qumran, at, at Masada, that Yadin himself suggested that some members of the Qumran community were among those on top of Masada at the time of the siege. Um, since then, some of the pottery from Yadin's excavations has been has been um, published. And it turns out that that we have among the pottery from Masada a small number of examples of the very distinctive cylindrical jars with bowl-shaped lids that are found in the dozens at Qumran and in the surrounding caves, but for all intents and purposes, nowhere else. And so um, in my mind, that really supports the sort of literary evidence. And um, I agree with, with Yadin. Now, there are, there are very uh, eminent scholars who disagree with that view. For example, my colleague, the late Hanan Eshel, um, argued that, you know, works like the Joshua Apocryphon and the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice would have circulated more generally among the Jewish population, which is certainly correct, and therefore do not necessarily indicate sectarian presence at Qumran. But but I, I think that the totality of the evidence together um, supports that, supports the view that that some members of that community were at, on top of Masada. Um, to the event that's recorded by Josephus, just to summarize Josephus's accounts of what happened, the siege, and more importantly, the mass suicide. And is there any historical corroboration for Josephus's account? Right. Um, so 
So we can divide the sort of conversation that we're having into two parts, the siege and the fall, right? There is no doubt that there was a siege at Masada. No doubt that there was a Roman siege because the siege works are there. You can still see them today. Every visitor to Masada sees the siege works today. You see the circumvallation wall, which is the siege wall that the Romans built around the, the, the base of the mountain. You see the eight camps that they built circling the mountain at the base to house their troops. You see the assault ramp that they built up the west side, right? So there's no doubt that there was a siege at Masada. And the remains that we have of the siege and the fighting that would have occurred in connection with the, the construction of the siege works, um, those remains are are really overall quite consistent with Josephus's description of, of the siege of Masada. So in terms of controversies, the controversy isn't so much about the siege, although my own involvement in sort of the archaeology of Masada really focuses on the siege, because from the siege works, we get really interesting information about um, how the Romans conducted a siege, you know, in the field. Uh, but the, the controversy, sort of the sensational aspect of the story of Masada is the fall of the mountain. What happened at the end of the siege, right? Um, and this is because of, of the nature of our information, which all comes from Josephus. Now, what happens is, is that, so a little bit, first of all, a little bit about, about Josephus. So Josephus was um, a Jewish, uh, an aristocratic Jewish man who was born in Jerusalem in 37 CE. His name uh, originally was Joseph, son of Mattathias, Yosef ben Matityahu. Uh, and when the Jewish revolt broke out in 66 CE, the Jews, because they declared independence from Rome, formed their own government um, and divided the country into districts. And Josephus was put in charge of Galilee, right? Um, and he then oversees Galilee until it, it falls to the Romans. It was the very first part of Galilee uh, to be taken by the Romans. Sorry, it was the very first part of the country to be taken by the Romans. Um, and uh, I don't know if I should go, well, I guess actually, okay, I was trying to do this in a short way, but I think I have to do it in a long way because there's no way around it. All right, so let, let's do it a little more completely. So what happens is, is that uh, after after the Jews proclaim independence from Rome, form a provisional government, Josephus is put in charge of Galilee, the Romans send troops to put down the revolt. And those troops were under the command of a general named Vespasian, who assembles his forces at Antioch in Syria and marches south. And the very first part of the country that the Romans marched against, that they reached, was Galilee, which was under Josephus's command. And so what happens is, is that one by one, the Jewish towns and fortresses of Galilee fall to the Romans because they were just no match for the Romans uh, until finally Josephus found himself holed up in a cistern on the side of the last remaining fortress under his command in Galilee, which was called uh, Yodfat in Hebrew or in, in um, Greek, Jotapata. And there Josephus found himself with 40 soldiers under his command who all decided that they would rather commit mass suicide than give themselves up alive to the Romans. And Josephus, by the way, didn't like the idea, but he had to go along with the majority and so uh, they drew lots. And as Josephus writes, through fate or contrivance, he drew the last lot. And instead of then committing suicide, as per the pact, he gave himself up alive to the Romans, which is why, sort of in the view of Jewish history, Josephus is considered a traitor to the Jews. And at that point, then, Josephus was led before the Roman commander, Vespasian, the, the Roman general. Why didn't Vespasian simply kill Josephus outright? Well, Josephus was very smart 
and he predicted that one day Vespasian would become emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, you have to understand what was happening in Rome at this point. We're in the year 67 CE. At this point, Nero is the emperor in Rome. It is three years after the great fire Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Uh, because of that fire, Nero was incredibly unpopular among the Roman public because that fire had wiped out um, areas where a lot of the housing for lower class people was lo were located. And so um, instead of rebuilding their, their housing, uh, Nero appropriated the land for his own and built a magnificent palace called the Golden House on the property. And so Nero in 67 was incredibly unpopular. Josephus knew it, undoubtedly, um, and, you know, suspected that Vespasian as a powerful general um, probably would like to be emperor. And so he made his prediction. Uh, he's taken alive into captivity. And a year later, 68, Nero is dead. And a year later, 69, Vespasian is proclaimed emperor of the Roman Empire. And uh, it then falls to Vespasian's older son, Titus, to have to carry out the siege of Jerusalem. Um, and so what happens then is that uh, Josephus um, accompanies Titus during the siege of Jerusalem. He actually circled the walls and tried to persuade the uh, Jews in the city to surrender to the Romans. It didn't work. The Jews apparently threw stones at him instead. Uh, and after the fall of Jerusalem in 70, Josephus went to Rome. He was given Roman citizenship, where he then uh, adopts a Roman name, Flavius Josephus. Flavius is the name of the family of Vespasian, right? Vespasian established the Flavian dynasty. And Josephus was then commissioned by the Romans, his Roman patrons, to uh, write a series of history books of the Jewish people. And the first of these is a massive seven-volume work called The Jewish War, which is basically the story of the first Jewish revolt against the Romans. And Josephus chose to end his story of the Jewish War with the fall of Masada. Now, the reason why uh, the, um, the story of the mass suicide at Masada, which I'm going to tell you about in a minute, is so controversial is because we don't have it described in any other ancient author. No other ancient source talks about the siege and fall of Masada. Uh, only Josephus does. And there's a question about why no other Roman sources, you know, talk about it. Um, was it something that they didn't want other people to know about or or what? Um, I think it's most likely, actually, that um, that for the Romans, in the eyes of the Romans, after the fall of Jerusalem in, in 70, anything else that they were taking was sort of mopping up operations, very minor in their eyes, and didn't deserve really to be discussed. I mean, there's no reason to devote anything to it. But for whatever reason, Josephus chose to end his story of the Jewish war with the story of Masada and the, the sort of mass suicide that occurs at the end, end of the siege. And because we have no other ancient sources, outside sources, that, that talk about this episode, for example, Tacitus, the Roman historian, talks about the siege of Jerusalem, but he doesn't mention Masada. So because of that, it's impossible to corroborate, to say, oh, we have another independent outside source. If you were doing journalism today, right, and you were reporting on a story, if you're a good journalist, you're not going to rely on just one source without corroboration, right? And so it is with the story of the mass suicide of Masada. So what happens is, is that according to Josephus, after after 70, you know, um, the Romans go back and, you know, to Rome, Vespasian and Titus have a big victory parade through the streets of Rome. Eventually, the Arch of Titus is erected in the Roman Forum to commemorate their victory and so on. Um, but there remained after 70, three 
former fortified Herodian palaces still holding out in the hands of Jewish rebels, Herodium, Machiris, and Masada. And so the Romans send troops to take these three last holdouts, right? First, they march against Herodium, which apparently fell very quickly without a fight. Then they march against Machiris, which today is in Jordan on the other side of the Dead Sea, where there is a siege. There's a siege ramp there, but it was never completed because the Jews surrendered before the end of the siege. And then finally, either in the year 72 or 73, the Romans arrive at the foot of Masada. And um, it's very interesting, by the way, the Romans sent an enormous force to take Masada. They send approximately 8,000 men to the foot of Masada when, remember that there's like 967 men, women, and children holding out on top of the mountain, which raises the question, why the overkill? Uh, and apparently it's uh, for a couple of good reasons. Number one, the Romans wanted to make sure that they stamped out every last spark of Jewish resistance. So they didn't want these rebels to come down and start the revolt up all over again. But the Romans also ruled a large empire with many different native peoples. And they didn't want anybody else to get the idea that you could revolt against Rome and get away with it, right? So they're basically making a statement here. So they send this huge force. The Romans arrive at the foot of Masada. They set up the siege. They seal off the mountain with a circumvallation wall. They build camps to house their soldiers. And then they construct a massive assault ramp up the western side of the mountain so that they can get their battering ram into place. And they start battering through the wall at the top of the mountain. And what I've just described up to this point is really not controversial um, because we have the archaeological remains of the siege works. The next part of the story is where the controversy is. So according to Josephus's account, what happens at this point is that the Jewish rebels on top of the mountain see that, you know, the Romans are about to take it. And their leader, Elazar ben Yair, convenes all of the men together, perhaps in a room that Yadin identified on top of the mountain as a synagogue, right, an assembly hall. And he gives them a speech in which he convinces, he convinces them that the best way to rob the Romans of their hard-won victory and preserve their own honor would be if they commit suicide at their own hand rather than give themselves up alive to the Romans. Sort of sounds familiar, right? Like Jotapata. And he convinces them to do this. And so what they do then is that uh, every man takes his wife and children and kills them. And then all the men get together and they draw lots. And out of them, 10 men kill all of the others. And then those 10 remaining men get together and draw lots again. And out of them, one man kills the other nine and then finally commits suicide himself. Now, before I go on, you know, one of the reasons why the story, uh, the, this story at Masada has been so controversial and sensational is because it's always described as a mass suicide, right? Well, technically there's only one person who dies at their own hand here, everybody else was was murdered or killed murdered. by somebody else. Um, and of course, this has been controversial because, you know, Jewish law prohibits suicide. But as my distinguished colleague, Larry Schiffman at New York University points out, murder as well, prohibited by Jewish law. <laughs> so either way, right? Anyway, now, if, if all of these people had committed mass suicide, how do we know the story then, right? So the story goes that not everybody actually committed suicide or died. Um, a couple of old women overheard the plans to commit suicide, and they hid out in a cistern on the side of the mountain with some children. And when the Romans came up, they gave themselves gave themselves up alive. And then somehow, either directly or indirectly, that story was told to Josephus, who then records it for us. Right now, um, 
when Yigal Yadin excavated the top of Masada in the 1960s, he he understood Josephus uh, literally. In other words, he believed that the story was true. Um, and that, and this is not a criticism. This is just that was the way scholarship understood Josephus at that time. So Joseph, so Yadin was perfectly within, you know, sort of the spirit, the scholarly, you know, spirit and and worldview at that time. But since then, other scholars have called Josephus's reliability into question. Um, and uh, you know, depending on how, again, who you are and and what your what your scholarly sort of background and outlook is. Um, Josephus is either somewhat reliable or pretty unreliable or completely unreliable, right? So there's kind of a whole range of opinions on this. But with, with regard to the, the mass suicide story at Masada, so what some scholars have pointed out in recent years is that the story of mass suicide, episodes where you have a story that ends with a mass suicide, that occur over and over again in Josephus. So we saw it at Jotapada. There's something sort of similar at Gamla in the Golan. There are all these episodes where, which end, where people commit mass suicide. And what these scholars have asked is, well, is it possible that all these people really were committing mass suicide? Or could it be that um, Josephus invented this, fabricated it as an ending to make the story more exciting? And by the way, if he did, it worked because we wouldn't be here talking about Masada if it wasn't for the mass suicide story because it would be just, just like every other Herodian fortified palace, right? So, so could it be that Josephus, you know, sort of invented this as an ending to the story to make it more exciting, more gripping? Now, you might be wondering then, well, wait a minute, but isn't there a way that we can sort of, you know, there are various objections to, to that that might come to mind. So one would be, well, wait a minute, wouldn't the Romans have objected to Josephus fabricating an ending to the story that wasn't true? I mean, after all, they were there. But there you would have the modern expectation of objective history, if such a thing even exists, whereas there was no such expectation or concept in the ancient world. In fact, the Greeks and the Romans um, wrote and read histories not for objectivity as, you know, an expectation, again, that many people might have today, but rather um, in order to be entertained, um, to learn about things that were exotic. And also for morals, there's usually a moral to the story, right? So fabricating an ending to the story would not necessarily have bothered uh, Roman readers. But then you might wonder, well, wait a minute, wouldn't the Romans have objected to Josephus fabricating an ending to a story that elevated the Jews in the eyes of their readers? Because, you know, when you read Eleazar ben Yair speaking to, you know, the men there, you know, it sounds like, well, they're heroic and noble in, in preferring death at their own hand than death and slavery at the hands of the Romans, right? So wouldn't the Romans have objected to that? But again, no, not necessarily, because, you know, there's no glory in defeating a weak enemy. Your own victory is elevated if your enemy is heroic and noble, right? So you can't really, I mean, there's not really a good basis for rejecting outright the possibility that Josephus fabricated the sort of mass suicide as an ending to the story. Then... But then you might wonder, well, wait a minute, doesn't archaeology tell us uh, whether the mass suicide occurred or not? And the answer is no, it does not. Because you can take the same archaeological remains and interpret them either way, depending on how you interpret Josephus. And to give you just a couple of examples. So when Yadin excavated the top of Masada in the 1960s, 
he did not find 967 skeletons on top of the mountain. He did not. He found three skeletons, a man, woman, and child who apparently are Jewish rebels or a Jewish family, buried in the collapse of the lowest terrace of the Northern Palace complex. And he found another group of skeletons, not clear how many there were exactly, somewhere between 5 to 25, in a cistern on the southeast side of the mountain. And it's not even clear that those skeletons are Jewish rebels. They could be Roman soldiers. They could be Byzantine monks. We don't know for sure. And that's it. He didn't find any other skeletons. So what did Yadin say? Again, Yadin is, is, is assuming that Josephus' story is true. So what Yadin said is, well... Okay, everybody commits mass suicide. The Romans come up to the top of the mountain. They find all these corpses lying around. Well, the Romans left a garrison on top of Masada for a couple of decades after the end of the siege. So obviously, they wouldn't have left rotting corpses lying around. They would have disposed of them by either burying them in a mass pit somewhere or maybe cremating them. So we don't have their remains. Now, let's assume for a minute that the mass suicide story isn't true that the Romans come up and there's some fighting and some of the rebels are killed and others are led away into slavery. Same thing, right? The corpses would have been disposed of. Now, something that uh, many of your um, listeners may be familiar with. So if you've been to the top of Masada, there's a room uh, or sort of, yeah, kind of like a room, an area next to the um, large bathhouse in the Northern Palace complex where the lots were found, right? That's what we pointed out. Here's where the lots were found. And indeed, uh, Yadin identified um, that room as the spot where the lots were found. So what did he find there? He found a group of ostraca, which are potsherds that are inscribed, right? They have writing on them, in this case, in ink. And in this case, very interestingly, the ostraca have Hebrew names on them. And in fact, one of the names actually is Ben Yair, which is very, very interesting. And Yadin identified these as lots, as the lots. And so what's the problem with that? Um, first of all, the problem is that there are not 10 ostraca in the group. There were 12. Uh, one of them clearly had never been completed. So Yadin disregarded it. Okay. But you still have 11 and not 10. And so what did Yadin say? Well, he said, well, you know, one of them is Ben Yair. Ben Yair was the head of the rebels and we can sort of exclude him. Oh no, <laughs> the reasoning is a little bit dicey there, but that's how he got to 10. And then he identified those as the lots. Now, um, after Yadin died, an untimely death, by the way, in 1984, the material from his excavations, which was not published in a final scientific report, was given to various um, uh, other archaeologists and scholars for publication. And eventually, the uh, those ostraca were studied and published by also a very eminent late uh, specialist, um, Joseph Neve of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who was a leading expert on ancient writing, a paleographer. Uh, and so he he published that group of ostraca. And he was unable to conclude that those were, in fact, the lots. And the reason is that we have groups of ostraca inscribed potsherds from various contexts dating to the time of the revolt around Masada, and it's clear that these were used for various purposes, like meal ration tickets or whatever. You have to think of these things like our post-it notes today, right? So you would take a piece of broken pottery instead of a post-it note and write on it. And so are they the lots? I guess they could be the lots, but they don't have to be the lots. They could be something else, right? So in other words, archaeology does not uh, prove or disprove 
the uh, the historicity of the story of the mass suicide on top of Masada. And really what it boils down to in the end is a matter of how you evaluate Josephus's reliability as an historian in terms of whether you think that that mass suicide story is true or not. What are the main archaeological remains findings in Masada? Not, not as it relates to the mass suicide or even the siege, but that tells us about everyday life mm. on top of a fortress. Um, you mean during the time of the revolt or, yes. or during the time of the revolt? Yes. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, we so archaeologically you can distinguish, you know, Masada... Masada is a fairly easy archaeological site in the sense that it's not like a biblical tell with lots and lots and lots of layers that you have to dig through. So it's got a fairly, you know, um, compact history with fairly discrete phases, right? And two two really major phases, right? The time of Herod and then the time of the revolt. So and most of the remains that we have date to, you know, those two phases. And obviously the majority of the remains that we have, especially when we're talking not so much about architecture, but about other finds like pottery and, you know, everything else dates to the very last phase, which is that, you know, dates mainly to the time of the revolt, right? There's also, again, that post-revolt, you know, Roman garrison up there. But really, there's a very significant, you know, sort of level of remains from, from the time of the revolt. Um, and so when Yadin was excavating, he he found, you know, all of that evidence. And, and basically what he found was evidence that... Um, hundreds of, of Jews, we don't know if there were 967, like, you know, that, that exact figure that Josephus gives, but clearly there were hundreds of, of Jews, and again, not all rebels, but just all different kinds coming and going, who were crammed into the various rooms around the top of the mountain. So much so that in some cases they occupied or reused some of Herod's old palatial buildings for various purposes, but also had to sort of build their own their own quarters, you know, add their own quarters. And really what you get is kind of the effect of, of a shanty town. Um, you know, uh, in the excavations, they referred to these as Ma'abarot, right? The transit camps from, you know, Israel in, in the 1950s. Um, and so what you find is particularly in the, the rooms of the casemate wall, um, you find lots of evidence of, of this occupation of these Jewish families, these Jewish refugees. And sometimes even where they would expand, they would build like these, these very thin, poorly built walls, you know, outside of the outside to kind of expand the area. It's kind of like, you know, I have an apartment in Jerusalem and you go around parts of Jerusalem today and you can see this phenomenon where you have these, these apartment buildings, these, you know, long apartment buildings where you'll have porches added to the outside, and then they'll add more to the outside. It's kind of like that, right? So so you find like these sorts of, um, you know, evidence of, of really just people who were just refugees um, crammed into these, into these rooms on top of the mountain, uh, lots of evidence of domestic activity. So cooking installations, things like, you know, stoves, for example, or some ovens, um, uh, evidence of like spinning and weaving. So everyday activities like that. Um, and lots and lots of the kinds of artifacts that go along with that storage jars, you know, for storing food or water or grain or oil, um, you know, uh, other, other items as well. 
so it's really fascinating it's like a it's like a snapshot into um sort of you know life as a jewish refugee uh on top of the mountain and and archaeological point of view religious life for these refugees oh yeah oh yes absolutely and it's clear that these were jews first of all a lot of the ostraka you know the, the ostraka are you know written in hebrew or aramaic and have hebrew names and you know so a lot of the times not always but um and even some of them, sometimes we have people who are pre clearly or priests or or whatever, but but archaeologically, also in terms of artifacts. So we have um mikvaot, um Jewish ritual baths, uh, on top of Masada Yadin actually identified two of them that were installed um at the time of the revolt. Um since then, other examples of, of mikvaot have been identified, and exactly what is a mikvah and what is a not what is not depends on exactly which archaeologist you follow. But certainly there were more than a couple, the couple that Yadin originally identified. Um, and also things like um stone vessels, which are very common at archaeological sites in the first century BCE, first century CE, and were used by Jews because according to um the interpretation of biblical law, stone cannot become impure through contact with something that is impure, right? It, it remains pure. Uh, so stone vessels become very popular and common at sites all over the country in the first century BCE, first century CE. And something that, that we know is quite common, but is hardly ever found because of the circumstances of preservation, we have some dung vessels on top of Masada. Because the, the, the principle that becomes accepted is that uh, vessels made of materials that are not transformed during the process of production uh, remain pure, even when they come into contact with something that's impure. So that's why stone, for example, would remain pure, but pottery and glass would not, right? Because the material is transformed during production. Well, dung um, also, dung vessels also uh, did not, were not transferred, were, were not transformed during the process of production. They're just sun-dried, vessels made out of out of animal dung and we know uh from rabbinic sources actually that uh dung vessels were were used by the jewish population but we hardly ever find them because again you know after 2000 years they just turned to mush but because of the very dry conditions at masada we actually have some examples of dung vessels which which were preserved and again they're the sort of thing that that is not so surprising to find um dung there must have been some uh, you know, pack animals on top of Masada. And so they would have, I'm sure that they were using dung for various purposes, including as fuel, but also the dung uh, would have been made into vessels, which then would have been considered um, uh, impervious to ritual impurity. And, and in terms of the manuscripts that were found, beyond the apocryphy, were there any other types of manuscripts found Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, there were there were biblical uh, manuscripts that were found. For example, in the room that Yadin identified as a synagogue, which I think actually is a synagogue, certainly at the time of the revolt, which is basically a room in the casemate wall that had benches added to it uh, for assembly. Um, in uh, a a room at the back of that of that room. Um, Yadin found a couple of biblical scrolls buried under the floor, which suggests that it was a Geniza. And those biblical scrolls uh, were Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. And then we have um, other scrolls that were found around the top of Masada. The, the main group comes from a room called the Casemate of the Scrolls, which is not far from the synagogue, actually. That probably was a dump from when the Romans took them out and they looted 
and they they dumped stuff. And so that room and so that room also had some biblical scrolls and I don't remember all of them by heart, but, you know, it included Genesis, for example, and I don't remember there were other works among there. So, yes, absolutely. We do have uh, copies of um, biblical scrolls from from Masada. As one who as a renowned archaeologist who has been at different sites and excavations throughout Israel, what what makes Masada? From an archaeological point of view, why is it such a compelling tour site? And should it be as compelling as it is? Or would you rank other excavation, excavations that you've been a part of as more significant than the site? If one can rank these, I don't know if they're even rankable. Yeah, that's, <laughs> wow. That's, that's really hard for me to answer. Okay. Um, because I think that... Uh, I think that without Josephus's story, Masada would not have the cachet that it has, the allure that it has, right? And that that has to do with what happens with the story of Masada, because it, it, it really is a phenomenon of the 20th century, where in the 20th century, through a confluence of events connected with the early Zionist movement um, and the establishment of the state of Israel, Masada becomes kind of a symbol of the state of Israel. Um, very early on, even before the establishment of the state, it becomes the spot, thanks to the late Israeli archaeologist Shmar Yahu Goodman, it becomes the spot where youth groups climb up to the top of the mountain, kind of, you know, kind of a thing, um, creating this kind of physical connection with, you know, with the land and with this particular site. Um, but again, all of this has, I mean, I think part of a large part of it has to do with Josephus' story, and I'm not sure any of this would have happened without that sort of you know, that very compelling story that Josephus presents. I mean, there's no doubt that Masada is, even without the story, Masada is a really interesting and important archaeological site. And and visually, it's spectacular, right? I mean, it's in this remote location, this very rugged mountain, isolated, overlooking the Dead Sea. So the setting is spectacular. I'm not sure that, though, that without, you know, even with all of that, that without Josephus' story, it would have become right? Because it's that combined with Josephus' story that kind of then makes it into the symbol that it becomes in, you know, the 20th century. So um, I don't, I don't know uh, that, that, yeah, that that can, you know, certainly there are other, plenty of other uh, important archaeological sites around the country. And, um, you know, it's interesting, uh, Masada and, and Caesarea are the two most visited archaeological sites in the country, we're excluding Jerusalem, obviously, because Jerusalem is a whole nother. But uh, they're the two most visited archaeological sites. And in the case of Caesarea, of course, it's a spectacular, gigantic, you know, visually amazing site. But it's also very close to Tel Aviv and very easy to get to. Everybody who lands in Tel Aviv, you know, they spend a night in Tel Aviv and then they go visit Caesarea. Masada, on the other hand, is a little bit, right, more remote. And that, again, is that allure of, you know, of this of the story, right, of the mass suicide. Are there any current or future archaeological efforts at Masada? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and here uh, I, I'll mention, so um, I have a colleague at Tel Aviv University, Guy Stiebel, um, who uh, is a professor there. And um, he was uh, one of Ehud Netzer's students. Um, and um, Ehud Netzer, again, was uh, an Israeli archaeologist who uh, worked with way back, you know, worked on top of Masada at the time of Yudin's excavations, and then later published the architecture um, on top of Masada as part of the Masada final 
report series. Ehud was known, he was my professor as an undergraduate. He was known um, really as, you know, sort of a real specialist on um, the the archaeology and architecture of Herod, right? He excavated a number of sites associated with Herod. Um, And so sort of continuing that kind of work, um, uh, Guy Stiebel, who who was um, Ehud's advisee, um, has been working in recent years on Tapa Masada, and um, I I don't know what his plans are for this year, but I would imagine that he's going to be continuing his work up there. Just in conclusion, you had mentioned that you're headed to Israel um, next month, I believe it is. Actually, in less than two weeks. Oh, less than two weeks. Okay. Yeah. So what are your plans? What are you um, planning on doing? Right. Yeah, so I like to joke, you know, so for um, a large part of my career, I was a uh, a Southern girl, a Judean, okay. uh, you know, Jerusalem, Qumran, Masada, Yotvata, Yotvata, not to confuse with Yotvat, Yotvata, all the way down from the Southern Arava, yes. right? Yes. Um, so for a long time, I was a, a Southern girl, um, but I, I became a Galilean, a Yankee. Uh, in recent years, uh, because of my interest in ancient synagogues and particularly Galilean type synagogues. Uh, and so in 2011, I started excavations at a site called Kukok, which is located not far from the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And our excavations there have been bringing to light the remains, among other things, the remains of a monumental late Roman synagogue dating to around the year 400 CE paved with extraordinary mosaics depicting an array of biblical stories, including scenes of Samson, scenes from the book of, from the book of Daniel, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, the building of the Tower of Babel, Jonah, I could go on and on. Uh, and so we will be continuing um, in, let's see, what's the date today? Yes, in about another month, we'll be having our next excavation season. Uh, the site is not open to the public, so don't those, you in Israel don't run up there. Uh, but, and there's nothing to see at this point because it's all backfilled anyway, but, um, but if you are interested, you can go to the dig website, which is hukok.org. So H U Q O Q.org. And there are tabs there with, uh, media coverage with our publications. If people want to see the mosaics, pictures of the mosaics and stuff like that. And yeah, wonderful. Well, you know, we can go on and on, but we have digs to <laughs> take care of. So, uh, <laughs> Um, this has been absolutely fascinating. Masada, from Jewish Revolt to Modern Myth, uh, Professor Jody Magnus. And again, thank you so much. I urge all our viewers and listeners, as I do, as I did, just to go onto Amazon, click of a button, order the book, and it, it really is a, is a, is a treasure. Um, Professor Magnus, again, thank you so much um, for um, your time today. Thank you. Nice, nice chatting with you.